Today, there are a bunch of podcasts about copywriting, but when we started this show more than five years ago, that was not the case. Can you believe it's been five years, by the way, Kara? <laughs> seems like a long time. Seems like 25 years. Yeah, at least, at least. <laughs> time flies when you're having fun. Back then, there were only a couple of people who recorded podcasts specifically to help copywriters get better at this thing that we all do. And one of those people was copywriter and coach Ed Gandia. Ed's been sharing what he's learned from being a copywriter for longer than we have. And like us, he's nearing almost 300 episodes of his show, sometimes interviewing other successful writers and other times teaching important business skills. And today, we thought we would invite him onto the Copywriter Club podcast to talk about his business, how he got started as a copywriter, and what he does as a coach, and also to share his best advice for copywriters ready to build bigger, better businesses. Stick around because we think you're going to want to hear what he had to say. But first, this episode of the podcast is not sponsored by the Think Tank. What? <laughs> it's actually sponsored by the Copywriter Accelerator, a program designed to give you the blueprint, structure, coaching, challenges, and community you need to accelerate your business growth in four months. So you can go from feeling like an overwhelmed freelancer to a fully booked business owner. If you have any interest in this program, you can jump on the wait list to be the first to hear details about the program when it opens in August. We'll link to the wait list page in the show notes. Yeah, you're definitely going to want to learn more about that. Okay, so let's get to our interview with Ed. This is not what I necessarily wanted to do when I grew up. It's not that I didn't want to do it, but it's not something I, I thought of doing. Um, I, I think so much of it stemmed from my success early on. Um, I was I came from the corporate world. I was in software sales and in other sales environments. And I, um, I, I was fortunate enough at the time, I didn't think so, but I was fortunate enough to work for companies that really didn't do much for me in terms of providing me with marketing support. So I had to learn how to generate my own leads and find my own opportunities. And a big part of that involved writing better marketing materials and sales letters and sales emails. And to me, it, it was really cool because that, that was selling on paper. And it, so it was, to me, it was still selling. So I, because of the way I am, I, I just thought, well, I, I am intrigued by this idea. I want to get better. Some of it is getting results, but some of what I'm doing is getting results, but I want to do better. And I started buying books and taking courses and, you know, didn't realize that what I was doing was this thing called copywriting. I was doing it. I just didn't know what it was called. And uh, I, I recognized early on that this is something that I, I truly loved and I wanted to do more of. And then I recognized that this is something I actually could do as a business. I had set a goal sometime around that, that time in my career to, within five years, go out on my own and, and do something. Um, but I was thinking more like a traditional business. And when I started doing this, I realized, well, this could be my business. I could do this for other companies. So I started this business on the side and I was, as I still had my full-time sales job, I started uh, looking for prospects to help them create better landing pages and sales letters and sales emails and lead generating emails. And um, I, I knew that this is the direction I wanted to head in. 
I was able to go from a, a six-figure software sales job to a six-figure full-time copywriting business in about 27 months. So because that happened so quickly and I, I was just talking to people uh, who, who were doing similar work and, and they were asking me for advice. And um, I, I saw a pattern in terms of the questions people were asking. And, and I also noticed that so much of what I had learned in sales was directly applicable to building a, a profitable copywriting business. So I started putting together information and then I, I sold it. And that eventually led to a, a blog that I launched with two other guys. And then that led to a traditionally published book. And then that led to creating courses and selling those courses. And then that kind of morphed into coaching. So that period was, you know, I went out on my own 2006. I started my side business in 2003. And in 2000, 2008, I started publishing and selling information to, to help others with that transition from full-time work to full-time copywriting, and then um, started coaching in 2012. So I, I think about it, it's been, it's been a long time. It doesn't feel like that long, but that's kind of the, the long story or the long answer to your question. Yeah, I'm curious about that ramp up period, you know, as you were switching from the sales career to a writing career, we've talked with people who have made it to six figures, you know, in the first year. And then we've also talked to people who, you know, they've been doing this five, six, maybe even longer years and still haven't hit that six figure. So will you kind of walk us through what it took? It, I mean, three years feels like a, a really sort of good number, you know, to, to be able to switch careers and make that. But what did you do to go from literally no copywriting to all copywriting and have it completely replace your previous career? I think there were several things. And I, I will say that, you know, it wasn't linear. As you know, these things don't happen in a really kind of a neat fashion. Uh, it took me a long time to land my first client, uh, my first real client. I landed a couple of really, really small clients that, of course, got me excited because somebody was actually paying me. But looking back, I, I really don't feel that those were my first real clients. It took me almost a year to, to land my first client. So out of 27 months, man, 12 months of that were, you know, I, I, I felt like I was getting nowhere. Um, in terms of what I did, um, I think it's a combination of, of factors. One was um, I'm, I'm pretty good at just experimenting with ideas and then quickly deciding or realizing which ones work and then doing more of that and then refining that thing. So I'm pretty disciplined and I pay attention uh, when, it, when it comes to those things. The other was the discipline of just having a schedule for myself and certain rules that I was going to follow because I couldn't slack off in my job and I couldn't afford to get fired. And in my performance, you know, in sales, your performance is measured quarterly. And, you know, so it's very easy to know if, if you're doing well or not. So I had to be very, very careful and I had to set a different schedule for myself, uh, work long hours. And, um, and then again, just keep doing the, the things that were working and trying new things and discarding those things that weren't working. And I, th I think the, the biggest factor of all, though, is that it was highly motivated. So in my day job, um, you know, once I decided that I was going to leave and just switch careers, period, I 
I, you know, it's, it's, it's that weight off your shoulders. Right. And then at that point, you're really not motivated to keep, you know, doing that work, but I had to. So I was really motivated to advance as quickly as possible. So I could meet certain goals that I had set for myself. One of them being a certain level of savings so that I could quit my job comfortably. Uh, and then another being, uh, having so much income coming in on a regular basis, part-time. So I, I was really driven by this idea of like, I have to get out of here. Um, I, I think that was really my biggest motivation when I think about it. I would love some specific examples from you as far as what was working in the early days as you were testing those different ideas, what started to work for you. And then, yeah. and then fast forward to today, what's working for some of the writers you're coaching today? Absolutely. And it's evolved. Uh, so for me, there, there were several things uh, in no particular order. Uh, one was tapping my network, uh, just reaching out to people I knew and saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm starting to do this. This is how I describe it. This is the, you know, what I can do for, for companies. And uh, do, do you know anybody who, who might be able to, uh, who, who, who could use this kind of help? Uh, sometimes they, they could use it themselves. Sometimes they, they could introduce me to somebody else. So definitely tapping my network, even people who I didn't think fully understood what I was doing or people who are not in marketing, you know, just kind of getting over this idea that, you know, reaching out to your friends and colleagues is, is a bad thing. I, I had to get over that pretty quickly. Uh, another one was just email prospecting. Um, this is something I had developed in sales where I, I kind of experimented with different approaches to email prospecting and they were very effective and I had refined that over time, tested new approaches and, you know, just kind of came up with a very simple, short template uh, that was very personalized and relevant that was working. Uh, another one was direct mail. Um, I, I was actually doing this in my software sales job. Again, you know, I was, I had to do this for myself to put food on the table. So I was writing sales letters that I would physically mail to prospects. And there were a few things that I was doing there. Some of it was, and I'm embarrassed to admit it, because this is like, keep in mind, this is a long time ago. This is like late 90s, early 2000s. I was faxing prospects and generating leads that way. And it was very, very effective. This is before it became illegal to do that. Um, so I started doing those things. So direct mail, tapping my network, warm, what I call warm email prospecting. And then once I, those things worked and from there, it was really about going deeper with some of these clients because I saw other opportunities and, uh, getting referrals. Uh, and then from there, it just became, um, an issue of just going you know, following those, those paths. But I would say those are the three main ways that, that work for me. And as you were starting out, Ed, did you niche by, you know, industry or did you, I have in my head that you did a lot of white papers uh, early on, but I could be wrong about that. Did you, you know, have a particular product that you would lead with? I, I didn't have anything specific at first. Uh, so one of the reasons it took me so long to land my first client is my, my positioning at first was I'll, I can write anything for anybody. <laughs> and, um, I, that just didn't work. So it wasn't specific enough. So I then eventually pivoted to writing for software companies. Actually, I, not even that I say high tech companies, high tech companies. Um, I will write copy and content very broad, but much more specific 
that's when I started getting results. So I'm a huge proponent of focusing on a target market. And it doesn't have to be an industry. In my case, in the case of about 80% of people, it's, it's typically an industry. But you have to focus. The world does not need another copywriter. What the world really needs are copywriters who are specific about whom they can best help and how. And I, I quickly realized that, wow, that this, this is where I'm really getting traction is now that I say, look, I have this background. I really leverage my sales experience. And I said, I'm, I come from a sales background. I'm the guy who's using your materials. You know, as a marketer, you're writing materials that, that help me in my job. So I have a different perspective and I can bring that from, you know, in the trenches perspective to these projects and that, that really resonated with, with prospects that I was, that I was talking to, but yeah, definitely focusing was, was huge in terms of the results. It definitely makes a lot of sense. It's something that, you know, we teach as well. I think as you coach copywriters today, I'm guessing that you hear some of the same pushback that, that we do when you know, we encourage people to narrow down or, or at least, you know, have some kind of focus. And that is, I don't know what to focus on, or I'm not ready. You know, I'm just starting out. And of course it does take a little bit of time to figure that out, but you know, as, again, as you're working with these kinds of copywriters, what advice do you give to them about the time it takes to find the niche? You know, how do you figure that stuff out? Well, I, I don't get into how long it might take because if, if they're unfocused, we work on that right away. That is so foundational that without that, nothing else is really going to be important. It's, it's all window dressing. Um, so I have a, a process that I go through uh, that helps them narrow it down. First of all, I tell people, look, I understand the hesitation, you know, because as creative people, we want to have full freedom. The problem is it's kind of a paradox. It's not going to come. That freedom of writing for anybody is not going to come. You really have to focus this idea that if you cast a wide net, you're going to have more fish. That's not going to work. You don't, you can't get a big enough net. You're way better off focusing uh, your 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 target market into something where the probability of success is much much higher. The other thing to keep in mind is when you focus, it doesn't mean that you can't accept opportunities outside of that focus area. It just means that what it gives you focus on what you pursue. We don't have the time and resources as solo business owners to just focus on diff, you know a bunch of different markets or just on everybody. We're not Amazon, you know. We're not Apple. So we have to focus, uh, but opportunities will still come your way that you can choose to accept or reject. And that's where a lot of the variety is going to come from. Plus it's, it's not true. You're still going to get a lot of variety. So here's my process. It's very simple. It, it, it involves four different questions. The first is where do you have experience either from your career, if you're kind of new to this, or even if you're not, just look back at your career, your work experience and in working with clients. So do a whole inventory. What types of organizations, what types of companies, businesses, topics, um, types of audiences, right? Just do a full inventory of that. Okay. So that's the first one. The second is take each one of these at one time and ask yourself the next three questions. So let's say that the first one was like in my case, well, you know, I, I sold software. Okay. So the software industry, the next question, I need to ask myself three questions about that particular market or topic. First question being, what's my network like in that area? 
Meaning like, do I know people? Do I know, do I have colleagues? Do I know people who know people there? And it's a simple answer. It's either, I tell people, look, give yourself a, a check minus if you know nobody, a check if your network there is kind of decent or average, and a check plus if it's above average. Okay, so we're just looking check minus, check, check plus. Next question, again, sticking with software. Um, what is the your best guess in terms of the demand for copywriters in that industry or in that market? And again, check minus, check, check plus. Well, in this example, it's definitely a check plus. Anything related to technology is constantly changing. They always need marketing materials. They always need content. They always need copy. The final question, again, sticking with software, how do I feel about the people and the topics that I'd be writing about? So the people I'd be working with and the topics that I'd be writing about. Check minus, check, check plus. Well, let's just say that in my case, I'll give it a check. All right, so maybe network was a check plus. Demand for copywriters or for, for copy and content is check plus. Topics, people is a check. That scores really, really well. All right, great. Let's go to the next one on the list. So you're essentially going through all of these and you're examining each possibility through three different dimensions. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely makes sense for sure. In, in that way, we're not looking at just one thing. We're not just looking at, oh, what's what's the demand like? Or, um, you know, a lot of people uh, focus on the last question I asked, which is like the passion. Oh, I, I'm really passionate about sustainability. Like I really want to write for companies that are either doing that or they have a sustainability program. Hey, that's great. But let's look at those other two dimensions. What is the demand and what's your network looking like there? Because just because you have a passion doesn't mean that that's going to be your best bet. So it, it gives you a more objective measure to make a better decision. So let's say we walk through that process and we figure out our market and we're focused you mentioned that you were able to tap your network and that helped you early on. I feel like this is something that we overlook and or just overcomplicate. And just speaking to some copywriters I've chatted with recently, can you just speak to why maybe why we overcomplicate something as simple as like tapping the network and people who already believe in us? You mentioned you got over it. You had to get over it. But the getting over part is the tricky part. So what helped you and what's helping the writers you work with today? I think the advantage that I had there is that I, because I came from sales, I didn't associate sales as being bad. But many people I work with, they, they have a totally different background and their image or their their perception of sales is that it's a bad thing, that you're convincing people to do things that they don't really want to do. So I think it boils down to that sometimes, if, often it's subconscious. It's like, well, if I tap my network, you know, I'm trying to sell them something they don't need, or I'm trying to ask for a referral um, uh, to, to, to someone where I will pitch them something they don't need. And, and, and that is really, I think, kind of a deeply held belief. It's a limiting belief that's, that's holding so many people back. I think the mindset shift needs to be, hey, um, <laughs> I'm probably doing people a disservice by not helping them by not letting them know what I do. If I believe that what I do is valuable and I'm good at what I do, people need to know about it. And look, if, if through a conversation we find that there's really not a fit there or a need, 
we'll disengage. You know, I'm not trying to talk anybody into anything. This is going to be a relationship. You know, it's not the kind of thing where once I sell it, then I'm off to uh, some other city and good luck with that. You know, no, this is hopefully we're going to be working together for a while. So I think, you know, unfortunately, it's it's kind of a subconscious thing and, and, and just a, a societal belief that selling is bad. Yeah. While we're talking about selling, uh, you know, obviously you had a background in sales, which gives you a bit of a leg up when it comes to writing copy. If you were advising a newer copywriter who has zero sales experience, what would you tell them about how to pick up those skills, how to learn it? Are there books? Would you recommend a course or is it just practice and feedback? That's a good question because I can't think of a specific book or, or a specific course that's like, oh, this is, this is the one, you know, this is the seven habits of a highly effective people of selling. Uh, I will say this, I think more important than a book or a course is shifting your mindset. And the most important thing, I think you, you a new copywriter with zero selling skills the most important thing that they need to understand is that sales is a conversation. That's all it is. It's dialogue. It's a, I have something of value. You possibly have a need. Let's have a conversation to see if there's a match here or a potential match. If there is, we can explore that further. If there isn't, we can just disengage and part as friends. You know, so to me, that's really more important than any kind of technique, course, techniques, strategies, all those things are certainly important. But if you can't understand that and make that shift inside yourself, all the strategies and techniques in the world and scripts and templates, they're not going to help you. You know why? Because prospects can smell fear. They can smell a lack of self-confidence. And, um, that's going to override anything good that you've done to, um, to, to become better at, at that technique. So I think we just need to shift how we think about it and not, especially if you kind of grew up in the era of telemarketers, you know, like uh, it, back in the day, I remember sitting down for dinner and the phone would start ringing, right? It, like if, if that's your perception, um, you, you really need to shift that very, very quickly. Um, the other thing I would say, though, in terms of just because I don't want to not answer or address your question is um, I, I think the best thing you could do is learn how to lead a conversation with a prospect. I call it the qualifying call or the discovery call because that's where the selling starts and that's truly a conversation. So learn how what I say what I mean by lead is learn how to walk a prospect through a series of questions that will do a few things. will help you understand if there's a potential value for them and what you're doing. If you're a potential fit, if you have a potential fit to, with each other, um, how you might be able to help them and what the value of your services might be for them. And from there, from the prospect's point of view, this conversation, if you lead it well, will present you as a professional, as a knowledgeable pro. Um, and, will will really position you as somebody who who could really help them and someone they really want to talk further to and and possibly work with. So if you can learn how to lead that conversation, that to me is, you know, you're not selling, you're just asking good questions and letting them talk. And the way I I like to think of that conversation is it should be about 70/30. 
it should be you 30% talking, them 70% talking. And I don't know about you, but I feel a lot more comfortable when I know I'm not the one who's having to do the talking. Like this right now, this conversation we're having, believe it or not, I've had a podcast for nine years. Um, I'm a little nervous, you know, I, well, not so much now, but at first, right? Because I'm the one who's supposed to do the talking here, but I find it very easy to interview people. So if, if you feel the same way, if you're listening right now, just know that, hey, that's what you have to do. You just have to ask good questions, take notes, and think about what the prospect is saying. Rob, we covered a lot in this part of the conversation with Ed. What resonated with you the most? Yeah, so as I was going through, like we do, I wrote down a few notes. And uh, there's a few things uh, that I wrote down. One thing that seems to come from a lot of people that we've interviewed on the podcast is just how many copywriters have some kind of sales background. I know we've talked about this before. We've talked about sales. Ed did a great job of, of talking about why that's important. But it is interesting that at least the copywriters that we tend to talk to, most of them come from a sales background as opposed to like a story writing background. And even though both of those skills are really important, copywriting is really all about sales. So if uh, you're thinking about being a copywriter or you are a copywriter, but you don't have the right sales skills, that's definitely something that you want to work on and add. Yeah. And, and we talked a lot about the sales conversation and the shift that needs to happen um, in order to really feel comfortable on those sales calls and confident on those sales calls. And I know that is something that many of us struggle with at times. So, you know, Rob, how do you, how do you approach sales calls so that you do feel confident and you don't struggle? And, you know, like Ed said, a prospect can smell fear that they know immediately if you're uncomfortable. I mean, it's like, it's the first second of the call, unfortunately, or fortunately. So what do you do to approach it in a confident way? Yeah, I think you and I have an approach a lot like what Ed shared, uh, you know, especially when he was sharing some of the questions that he asks in his discovery calls. But really, the way to do that is to ask as many questions as you can about the business. And he shared some of his specific questions. There are other questions that I ask, you know, I love to know about uh, what where my uh, clients customers are coming from, you know, are they coming from ads? Are they coming from linked blog posts or affiliates or, or those kinds of things. I like to know about the financial impact that each of their products has, you know, how much is each sale really worth to the business? Uh, how many people, you know, conversion rates, how many people are buying right now? Because I, I want to be able to take that information later on and figure out, okay, what kind of an impact can I have? But the real reason to ask those questions, and it's not just those, unlike any question about the business, is that in getting your client to talk about their business, you're first learning things, but also that just engenders trust between you and your client. The client sees that you know what you're talking about by the questions that you're asking. You're asking things related to their marketing and not just, you know, what will this copy do for you? Or, you know, what kind of headlines do you like? You know, can you share some websites that you've liked, uh, you've seen out in the world that you also liked? Because that's that's about the copy, but it's not really getting to an understanding of really what they do. And when you ask those deep questions about the business, about the product, uh, you know, customers, all of that, they just know that you're coming from a different place than most other copywriters. So we've shared a lot of those questions in the past. We've shared a list of them in the underground. 
But I, and I think your approach is the same too, Kira, uh, or, or do you do something different? No, I think it's, it's similar. You know, Ed talks about it should be roughly 30% of you, the copywriter salesperson talking and 70% of them talking. I think that's a good breakdown. Um, I like to keep it conversational and separate myself from the solution. So I think it's harder to, for me, at least it's harder to just sell Kira. Um, It feels too personal. Um, I do better when I'm selling for someone else. And so if I can sell and separate myself and almost like sell the solution, which could be your copywriting system. I mean, everything we do in copywriting is we talk about processes all the time. It's, it is a solution. It is a system that we're selling. It's a product. There's a value attached to it. Um, And that's all outside of me, Kira, the copywriter. So when I separate the two, it's easier to talk about it and um, feel more comfortable talking about it. So that helps me too. And I just say from the beginning, when I get on, like, here's the agenda. I'm going to ask you a ton of questions. Then we're going to talk a little bit about what I do, how I do it, and then we'll talk about next steps, if it's a good fit or not. And it just feels almost too, like, very easy breezy, um, maybe even too easy breezy at times, but it just takes the pressure off. So um, takes the pressure off both of us on the sales call. I think it's also worth reminding all of us just that the person, the prospect on the call with you, they are rooting for you. They are on the call and taking their precious time to be on that sales call because they're already interested in what you have to offer. And they want you to nail the sales call. They want it to be a success. They want you to ask them great questions. They want to hire you. They want to feel like you're competent and confident and can take control of the project. I, you know, as a prospect who's been on many sales calls and on the opposite side, it's always disappointing when you're like, oh, I so badly want to hire you, but like you're just tanking a sales call and I just want to help you and guide you through it. So, um, you know, the person on the opposite side of the Zoom call really wants you to succeed and do well on those calls. Yeah, there's some irony in the fact that we call these sales calls and the last thing that we should be doing on these calls is selling ourselves to our clients. And again, a a lot of times we call them discovery calls. I think that's such a, a much better name because you're just trying to discover what your client does, what the product is all about. You're trying to discover how the money comes into the system. If you can help them make a difference by changing something or creating something new for them, you're trying to discover if they're going to be a fit for you and if you're going to be a fit for them. And the last thing that you should be doing on a sales call is, you know, hard selling why you're the right person. That is a good point. Let's stop calling them sales calls. Before we leave this this idea too of, of that early experience, that sales experience, I just you know want to say that oftentimes, and, and I think we've said this in the past as well, but um, oftentimes that early experience in our careers, like what Ed had, where he got stuck, where he wasn't getting this marketing support, and so he had to figure it out himself. Uh, those kinds of experiences really can solidify our skills as copywriters and as problem solvers. It's, you know, the, the figuring stuff out. I had something similar early on in my career where I was working in an advertising agency and, you know, I wanted to be working on all the ads that are running on TV, the stuff that's winning the awards. And I got stuck into the side of the agency that was all about direct response. And 
like writing the same advertorials, you know, that were showing up in a hundred newspapers across the country or, you know, going in and editing a television commercial, you know, 50 different versions with 50 different phone numbers, because, you know, we had to track who was calling from what markets. And, and at first when that happened to me, I hated it. I, I didn't want to be doing that, but in hindsight, that was such a gift because just learning direct response, advertising, marketing, direct mail, um, DRTV, all of that gave me a basis that then made what we do today as conversion copywriters, internet marketing, all of that kind of stuff, not just in the business that we do as copywriters, but for my clients just puts me so much farther ahead. So, you know, if you're, if you're currently in, you know, an early career experience like that, or, you know, some job that maybe doesn't feel like it's getting you to the right place, be patient with it because oftentimes the fact that you need to solve new problems or solve problems that you aren't getting support on can lead to something much bigger and better. Yeah. And that is a great segue into talking about focus and niche. And Ed shared his process, which really is four different questions that he'll ask. And he helps copywriters work through to figure out what their niche could be. And so we can talk through some of those questions, but First, I just like that, you know, when we talk about niching, we talk about it all the time. I'm sure, like many of us are sick of talking about it, but it comes up because it's important. And, you know, part of how Ed was talking about it, he said, it's really about helping business owners focus. And oftentimes, if there's no niche, there's a lack of niche, those are the most, you know, unfocused business owners. And, and that's where that leads to the struggle. If you're, if you do not have that focus, that's why it's hard to write your website copy. It's hard to send emails and, and market your business and figure out packages. And so it's not about like niching for the sake of niching, but it's just about finding focus. And can you find that focus in, in your business so that it's easier to do all these things? Rob, I don't know if you want to talk through some of those questions that he asks. I specifically liked when Ed said, you know, when he was showing up as the copywriter who says, I can write anything, uh, he didn't use these exact words, but what you do when you say that to a client is that you're now telling the client to figure out how you can help them. But when you show up as a copywriter who solves a specific problem, now they can easily see how you fit into the business and they don't have to do any work to figure out, okay, can this person actually help me? because I know that they're going to help me solve this problem that I'm feeling right now. And uh, he also specifically said, um, the world doesn't need another copywriter. They need copywriters who are specific in who they can help. And I think that's a really good way of looking at niching. Yeah. So the questions, one goes back to what Rob was talking about, about your past experience, career experience. So first question to ask is, where do you have experience in your career and clients you've already worked with? Second question, what's my network like in that area? Do you know a lot of people? Who do you know? Do you already have those connections, like the low-hanging fruit that you could tap people you could reach out to? Third question, what is your best guess in terms of the demand for copy in that niche? And if you're not sure, this is where it helps to be part of a copywriting community where you can ask and you can find out, are there other copywriters in that space? And if there are other copywriters in that space, that's a good thing. That means that there's a lot of work in that niche. And the final question, how do I feel about the people and topics that I would be writing about? Because if you do not like it and you are not interested, it is not worth pursuing. 
for sure. I I think all four of those questions are really valuable. And then I would just add a fifth. And this is something that we talk a lot about when we talk about X factor. And that is, what is the problem in that industry niche or whatever that you can solve for your client? What's the problem that they're feeling? And so, I mean, that goes along with your experience in the industry or in the niche and the demand for copy, but really drilling down to that single problem uh, or that group of problems that you can solve that creates value for your clients. And so that combination of those four questions that Ed did with that question that we like to ask in the X Factor, I think gets you very close to a niche that could be very successful for you. Ed also talked about um, getting started and, and what he did, you know, even though it was a, a while back since he got started, but he tapped his network. So we talked a little bit about tapping your network. And this feels important to me because this is where a lot of copywriters struggle. A lot of the copywriters we talk to when they pivot in their business or they're just getting started um, or maybe they just have a quiet month or two. And we often forget the power of just tapping our network maybe because it almost can feel too easy. Like the action of tapping the network is easy. I think the mindset struggle behind it makes it a lot harder. Um, But that's a great way to get started because we all take a network with us. Even if we're new in an industry, we have friends, we have colleagues, we have family members who want to help us and may know someone who can be a good contact or even a potential client. Yeah. And he, I mean, he mentioned it actually took him 12 months to get to that first real client, right? He was doing some small things along the way. And of course he was working a full-time job. And so he wasn't giving everything to it, but just the fact that it took 12 months to get to that first client, that takes some tenacity, some resilience, you know, the ability to look and say, okay, you know, this isn't working. What do I need to try next? And I think it's, just a really nice example out there for some of us who have struggled to find clients or, you know, it it works one month, but then we have a dry two or three months. It does take time to make this stuff work. And anybody who says, yep, you can be up and running with clients, no problems, you know, from, from the get go, you know, 10 X your business from two to, you know, 20 or, you know, whatever those promises are, take those with a grain of salt. Yeah, they're possible, but most of us struggle for a while. Let's get back to our interview with Ed to hear his take on the phases of a discovery call. Can you provide some, just some examples of those leading questions that you've used in the past or maybe, you know, some of your copywriter clients are using today? Sure. More than questions, I like to think of them as phases of the conversation because The moment you have to memorize questions, you're going to be too rigid and you're not going to be able to pivot. Every conversation is organic and it's going to take its own form, right? So it's really more about how do I navigate this conversation make sure that I cover all the kind of the key areas. So first I have an icebreaker and the icebreaker is very simple. So how did you find out about me? Or it could be, what made you reach out to me? I'm just curious. Um, And I ask it in a very friendly way, just like, hey, I'm curious, before we get to some of the questions that I had for you, um, what made you reach out to me? Why me? That's essentially what you're asking. And we'll we'll come out of that. First of all, it's it's just an easy question to ask. It will kind of lower the tension. And it will it will tell you first of all how are they thinking about this? Like how are they going about looking for someone to help them solve this problem? And two, what did they see in you 
that uh, caused them to submit the inquiry. That's really important because if they're not saying anything about that, you know, for instance, I really want prospects who say, you know, we're looking for someone to help us in this area. I, I was doing some research and I came across your website. I really like the fact that you focus on X or that you have this background or that you've worked for these types of clients. That's really, really valuable. So I just, that's really good intel um, as you kind of proceed with a call and as to, to help you when you put your, your quote together, you know, when you present your, your proposal. Um, so from there I move into, and it's usually very organic and natural. And if they, they haven't mentioned that yet, then I move into the phase of ch the challenge phase. Okay. Well, what, what challenge do you have that you're trying to solve or what project are you looking to, uh, or are you looking for help with depending on, you know, is it somebody who's already got something defined or they just have some challenges that they need help with. Then from there, I'm asking uh, the next phase, the third, let's call it the third one, is it's what I call the decision-making process. And if they haven't mentioned it already, I want to ask questions related to how are you going about this search for somebody? Or how are you going about the decision for hiring a copywriter? Or how are you thinking through this? Or how do you think this is going to go? Like, what what are you hoping that a writer will be able to do for you? Okay, so those types of questions. And again, this is why I don't like memorizing them because you need to pivot based on what they've already shared with you. Right. But it's, that's, that's the focus there. The next phase is very simple. It's a time, the timing phase. These are timing questions. So if they haven't addressed it yet, and again, in many cases, some of this information has already come out. When are you looking to get started here? When do you need to go live? When are you launching? Right. We're just trying to figure out what's their timing like, because I want to know. I mean, they're just this is something they're not even going to address for another four or five months. That's very different from somebody who needs to get started right away because they have a deadline. And then finally, we move into the money phase. Um, I always say uh, keep this acronym in mind, ATM. Always talk money. You do not want to leave that discovery call without addressing money. I have a very specific question here uh, that in a very specific process that I use. And the question is very simple. At this point, I'll ask, tell me a little bit about what the budget you're working with or a ver different version of that variation is uh, what kind of budget are you working with for this? And then I just shut up. And this is key. It's so easy. It's so nerve wracking sometimes to just kind of keep adding or to keep saying things that don't do that let them talk. One or two things are going to happen. Either they're going to give you a number or a range. That's about 40, 50% of the time, or they're going to kind of throw that hot potato back at you. Well, we're not really sure. Uh, what do you typically charge for this sort of thing? And at that point, my recommendation is you should be able to give them a range. And the way I like to do it is I just explain, I kind of recap everything. Well, you know, my understanding is that you're looking, you have this challenge. Um, this is, this is the impact that it's creating. This is what you're looking for help with. And here's why, um, you're looking to get started, you know, or you need to go live by this date. Um, my ballpark figure for helping you with this type of project, and let's say it's a defined project is between X and Y. Does that fit within your budget? So 
They th- I threw the hot potato at them. They threw it back at me. Fine. Fair enough. I said what I needed to say. I'm throwing it back at them. And in most cases, they're going to have to tell you at that point. We're just trying to see, hey, before I spend a lot of time here, you know, do we have a potential match from a budget perspective? And and then we go from there. And typically at that point, we're just wrapping up. And I'll just say, well, listen, I let me uh, let me think through this a little bit. I'm going to put a quote together for you and I will have it to you by, you know, lunch tomorrow. When can I follow up with you? You know, at that point, once I send it to you, when should I follow up with you? So the, the key point there is you always need to have a next step. That's a very common mistake. It's like, all right, well, great. I'll send you something. And then you don't have a next step. Always decide on the next step or get commitment on the next step before you hang up. That gives you permission to, to then uh, follow up. And then one last little thing, and this is something I've just been recommending on and off over the past year or two, but I'm, I'm kind of making it a must do. Put an expiration date on your quote or proposal. And not because your prices are changing. Frame it as a, hey, your schedule and your capacity are very fluid. Um, and you you can guarantee that you can take this on around this time. But beyond that, you, you can't guarantee it. So there's an expiration date. You know, this quote is good until this date. And then that gives you a really good follow-up window as well. They've already told you when you can follow up. But then um, you know that, and I recommend two weeks typically for that expiration date. As that expiration date approaches, you have a really good excuse or justification for following up. Yeah, really good advice. I, I love the process and the, the call. Aside from not doing this stuff, Ed, you know, not following the the process. Are there other mistakes that you see copywriters making as we approach clients, as we have this discovery call that just kind of blow things up before we can land a project? One that I see a lot is not really digging for value and not really understanding why this is important, what the impact of getting this right is. So when I think of value, I think of not just value in terms of ROI, but also potential risk, the risk of doing nothing or choosing the wrong copywriter. I need to understand why they need to get this right, what, you know, what's at stake and that's why you want to ask questions around that. And I see very few copywriters asking about that. And I think it's a mistake because if you don't, the way you present yourself and your value is not going to be effective. And now you're just going to be a number, everything else being equal. I don't want to be a number. I want to be the person they think, wow, you know, all these other people were basically order taking. You know, we told them we have this, we need to get done. And they said, sure, you need that. Here's the price. This guy took the time to really dig a little deeper, understand what we're trying to do and our objectives better. Um, I think he understands our value and why this is important. And he presented his fee in the context of that value. And I feel just more comfortable with that, whether this happens consciously or subconsciously um, is really digging for value. Um, and understanding that better and then presenting your your fees and yourself in the context of that. I want to shift a bit and talk about habits. I know you know you deconstruct habits and strategies for your copywriters in your community. I'm just curious how you approach habit building in your own life and business and then how how you teach others to do it. Yeah, it's that's that's a great question because it's I think we're all finding out that everything in life is 
pretty much habits, right? right. I, I, Surprise. I work with it's all, all habits. It's all habits. And, and I work with a lot of people who have great intentions um, and they know what they need to do. You know, so as we work together, we figure out the what needs what they need to deploy. But it really comes down to implementation and steady, consistent implementation. That's where the rubber meets the road. I really like James Clear's approach to to habit development because he boiled it down to four laws. So I like to work with people on defining what's how we're going to implement those four laws. So the first one is make it obvious. Okay, great. We know we have to to fill about uh, $3,000 or $5,000 a month in, in income over the next six months. That's our target that we, we're trying to get to. So we have this plan and here are the things we're going to need to do. And let's just say that that involves LinkedIn. Okay. Just, just to have something we can work with. All right. Well, how do we make that obvious? How do we make it obvious so that, you know, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, when you know we decided you're going to do LinkedIn, how do we make sure that it happens? So is it through sticky notes? Is it through reminders? Is it through, you know, just kind of creating a new routine for those days um, where this is the first thing you do, right? Whatever it is. So make it obvious. The second is make it attractive. So how do we make it something that you actually want to do? You know, there could be a lot of different things. Going back to the LinkedIn example, maybe you give yourself a... Um, an easy way to do this. In fact, that's the third law as well is make it easy to me, make it attractive and make it easy. could be interchangeable. Many times they are uh, the same thing, uh, but I'm not going to spend two hours. Uh, the first few weeks, I'm going to spend just 20 minutes, three days a week. That feels attractive to me and it meets the third law, which is make it easy. And then the final law is make it satisfying. So that kind of completes the loop. I want to, and, and a great way to make things satisfying with a lot of the stuff that we all need to do is to, is to pat ourselves on the back. It, just a sense of accomplishment, the sense of, hey, I did what I said I was going to do. It's the accountability. And I can report to Ed that this week, yes, I did my, my three days this week. Uh, that feels very satisfying because it, it feeds into our identity, which is so powerful. And we all want to be congruent, right? We all want to be the kind of person who does what they say they're going to do. So find that in other ways of making it satisfying. Honestly, outside of these four laws, there's really not much more. It, to me, it really boils down to those four things. So it's like, how do, how do we pack each one of these? so that um, we dramatically increase our chances of developing that habit. Yeah, I think it's a great process. I'm curious how this shows up in your life, Ed. Do you have habits around morning routines or content creation, stuff that shows up daily or weekly in your life? How do you implement that? Yeah, so in fact, I'll use those too because those are, those are great ones. Um, a morning routine that I do, and uh, for me, it has to happen at a certain time. So I'm very routine oriented by nature, and this only works when I wake up at the time that I've set my alarm for, and when I, you know, do these certain things for half an hour, and then I go to my office at the certain hour, which is seven o'clock, and for an hour I do these three things as part of my morning routine, and I I say that I emphasize the fact that it's very routine based because we, <laughs> I was just at the beach for a week with my family. And the disruption to that to that routine was like 
actually kind of jarring. I felt a little lost, even though, of course, I'm on vacation. It's supposed to be this way. Um, I probably should have continued that there, but I didn't. And I really felt uh, weird about the whole thing. So I, I need that routine. Uh, that That's really what keeps me uh, what keeps me very focused. In terms of content, there is one thing I do, which is um, I put together a quick uh, audio message for uh, some of my coaching clients every every weekday. Um, so it's really kind of a 20 minute routine where I, I write it uh, and then I I just record it on my on my phone. And that's that's a habit and a routine that I've developed that that I really love. And it it really matches these um, follows these four laws. How else are you building you know, CEO time, thinking time, strategy time into your business on a weekly or monthly basis? Ah, yes. Great question. It's so easy to overlook that or to say, sure, I know I need to do that. But very few of us work on our business consistently. Um, so to me, going back to routines, um, two things. First of all, I like the rule of thumb of 10%. Um, I, and this is what I want to, what I teach my coaching clients is dedicate 10% of your work week to working on your business. That's a really good ratio. So if you work 20 hours a week, Hey, that's two hours a week, you know, and it feels doable. Um, and in two hours a week, 10% can, you can make a huge, huge difference. So first is just, you know, making that commitment 10%. Um, the, the second thing is to, uh, to dedicate a certain time or day to that, uh, on a consistent basis. So just know when it's going to happen. Don't just say, Oh, 10% of my week, I'm going to spend it this week and every week is different. No. Um, so for me, what I had to do was to start taking Fridays off. Uh, and Friday be becomes really a mix of two things. So, um, half of the day, let's just say about four hours is spent working on the business. Uh, and that is thinking time. It's reading, it's strategy, it's, uh, journaling, it's brainstorming, uh, those sorts of things. And the other half is, is actual like free, just, you know, get away from my desk kind of time. So to me, I, I, I have to block out the whole day. And the, the neat thing is, uh, I have discovered that by doing that, by creating that kind of constraint, the rest of my week is much more productive. It forces me to be much more productive the rest of my week. Now, it's intense. Don't get me wrong. Like people might think, oh, four days. That's wow. Because I take Saturday and Sundays off as well. So three days off, that, that must be really nice. No, I it, it's it's intense. Monday through Thursdays, I am today I'm jam-packed. But I, I really like that. And I I would rather have that kind of rhythm than to just be kind of sloppy um, every single day and never have that time to work on my business because it's just an intention, but it's not scheduled. Scheduling is really what makes it work. And before we started recording, we were talking about this tool that you have called the Freedom Triad. And I know we're going to run out of time before we run out of questions. So I want to make sure that we get to this and talk just a little bit about that. Tell us what it is and how you use it. Yeah, it's uh, so the Freedom Triad is a great diagnostic tool. Uh, when things just aren't going well, this is a great tool to, to, to use to, to see where the problem, uh, the root cause might be. And it's also a good thing to just kind of keep on your wall, you know, on your bulletin board or whatever, just as a reminder, hey, these are the three things that are really going to move the needle in my business. At the end of the day, like what I tell people, look, it, I think we all want the same thing. And this is what I work with coaching clients on is 
earning more in less time, doing work you love for better clients, right? So, but let's take that first piece. How do you earn more in less time? Whether you work 10 hours a week, 40, 50 hours a week, doesn't really matter. Three factors, or I call them freedom activators. The first is higher dollar projects. Okay. So I see so many people, they, they do a lot of volume on a lot of, of a small, small projects, bunch of small projects. Okay. That's exhausting. You're going to burn yourself out. You need to mix in higher dollar work that also involves raising your fees. Um, I think too, too many of us are hesitant to raise your fees. I think right now, with you know the high inflation that we're all seeing, this is a great time and a great excuse to raise our fees if you haven't already. So higher dollar. The second freedom activator is recurring work, meaning more recurring work. Uh, making more of your income recurring and predictable in nature. The way I like to think of it is, look, take stock now. Okay, do a quick calculation. The past six months, what percentage of your income is either on retainer formally or very predictable. Use that as your baseline and work to increase that by, let's say, 20% over the next few months. So getting more and more of your income to be recurring, um, just so many benefits. It's predictable. It's less stress. You become better at it, more efficient while keeping your fees the same. Um, and in fact, that leads to the third freedom activator, which is efficiency. So learning how to do the work how to deliver the work, produce the work much more efficiently, having systems in place that you develop. Um, there are a lot of strategies for writing faster, doing a better job of planning the, the piece before you just start writing, uh, those sorts of things. So if you, if you combine these three together, you know, higher dollar work, raising your fees, more of your income being recurring and becoming much more efficient to uh, producing the work, I mean, that, that right there is, is, is the holy grail. And as you can see, if you're having problems looking at these three factors and asking yourself, you know, where could I do better? That will really give you answers quickly. Before we wrap, I am curious to hear what you're struggling with today because you, you're doing so many things well. You've got the habits, routines, you've got CEO time. But what is something that you struggle with at, at this stage in your business? Oh. <laughs> Ah, uh, yes. I would say this is not just now, but this has been kind of a recurring theme in, in my business and throughout my career is I have too many ideas that I want to pursue, too many things I want to launch and, and try, uh, especially, and they come during that CEO time. It's like, oh, wouldn't it be great? I could do this, you know, and I fall prey to this. I could do this and it would be fun. Um, but I get myself in trouble very, very quickly by overcommitting myself. And um, that is a constant struggle for me. So there you go. <laughs> we feel the too many ideas to execute on pain uh, on a weekly, maybe even a daily basis. So we, we can totally relate. And I'm curious, th this maybe kind of goes back to the very beginning of our conversation, but over the stretch of the last 20 years, how has the work that you do changed? So, you know, going from copywriter and then you, you know, authored a book, you've authored a couple of books actually to 
coaching, I think almost full-time, if not full-time. full-time like how yeah. has that shift happened over the last uh, you know, couple of decades? And maybe the, one of the reasons I'm asking it is because occasionally we'll see a copywriter jumps in, has a bit of success, and you know, year one, they're like, well, I'm going to become a, a, a copywriting coach, uh, which maybe that works for them. You know, maybe it doesn't, but just I, I'd love to hear how that recipe came together to you know, basically follow that path to where you are today. I'm not sure this will answer your question, but I, I think for me, what I noticed that it was never, it was never my end goal. It just kind of happened organically and I pursued what felt right for me as opposed to it being, I'm going to do this steps one, two, and three, so I can do four, which is to coach and to sell courses. I, I guess, and, and tell me if, may, if if this is not what you're, you're asking, but I, I've seen people not just here, but in many other businesses where that is the end goal. And because it's engineered that way, it just, it's not effective. It, it doesn't last. So um, I think anytime anything can be more about pursuing your, your passions and, and just paying attention. I think it's something that we just don't make enough time for. This is why that CEO time is so critical. Thinking time. It, it, you could miss out on, on opportunities that, you know, maybe you hadn't really given time to and be more aware of where you're adding value, what's fun and what you'd like to do more of, as opposed to, oh, I want to get, you know, I'm going to get rich off doing this. Does that, does that answer your question? I'm not sure if that's, uh, if that's where you're after. I think it's a great answer to the question because I think part of the problem of having that goal, well, I mean, it's not a problem. If you want to be a coach or if you, you know, have a goal like that, I think that can be a positive thing. But like you said, you miss some of the serendipity that happens along the way where it's like you discover, oh, people are interested in this thing that I was doing or am doing or that I'm getting really good at. And I didn't have that as part of my particular plan. And so just being open to those kinds of opportunities, I think, can be really positive for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you a couple of examples. So coaching kind of came out that way. I was doing courses. I just wanted to do courses and teleseminars, you know, live teleseminars. And what ended up happening is some people approached me to see if I could help them directly and have conversations and help them work through the problems. And I was really nervous about saying yes to that, but I said yes uh, to one person. And, and, you know, I quickly recognized that I loved it. And that I was actually pretty good at it based on the feedback they were giving me. So there's that. The other thing is um, something I'm doing now is I've, I've collaborated with a few people who are doing something unique and really cool and valuable that I hadn't done before as a writer or a copywriter, right? So they're doing that in their business. So for instance, I recently partnered with uh, Austin Church to teach writers and copywriters how to sell strategy as a standalone service. Well, he's been doing that for several years now and he's really, really good at it. Well, I, gosh, I, I don't want to have to reinvent the wheel. Austin, are you willing to partner with me and we could teach this to my tribe, you know, and we could do a joint venture. And I've done a few of these and they've been so successful that I realized, well, wait a minute, all the knowledge, all the intellectual property doesn't have to come from me. You know, could I partner with other people who have things that I don't have, have intellectual property and are doing really cool things that I never did. And we could find a way to make it really profitable for everybody, for the people who are going to learn, for them for teaching it, and for me for providing the uh, the vehicle to, to do it. So 
that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't stayed aware. Um, and you, I don't know, I don't think you can manufacture and pre-plan for those things. You're right. It is serendipity. So Ed, where can our listeners uh, connect with you, find out more information, check out your programs and all of your offers? Where can they go? The best place would be uh, my website. I have uh, just a ton of free resources there and it's b2blauncher.com. So letter B, the number two, the letter B, launcher.com, b2blauncher.com. I got a free book you can download. It's called Earn More in Less Time. And uh, it's a pretty meaty book. It's in PDF form. And I got 90 years worth of podcast episodes and uh, all kinds of free articles and resources there. That's really the best way to kind of get to know my ideas and, and my strategies and a little bit more about me. Thanks, Ed, for you know, sharing so much about your business and, and the path that you followed over the past couple of decades as you've gone into coaching and shared so much with so many copywriters. I know, you know, I've listened to a ton of your podcasts and gotten a lot of value out of them. And there's, a, I think, a lot of crossover between, you know, what we teach and what you teach and, and a lot in common. And I think uh, it's just a good one-two punch for resources for getting better at copywriting. So highly recommend your resources to everybody who's listening. Thanks again for coming. Oh, thanks, guys. It's a lot of fun. That's the end of the interview with Ed. I've got a couple of other things that I want to mention, but Kira, what stood out to you from the last few minutes of our conversation? You know, again, we already talked about the sales call, but I do like that we were able to go deeper here with Ed and he shared the different phases. And I believe he even said, you know, he doesn't like to script it. I know some some copywriters script sales calls, especially if you're getting started. Sometimes that helps. Um, it can also feel a little bit unnatural at times, but for him, it's phases and just knowing kind of where you're taking the conversation. And so he broke that down for us with icebreaker questions, the challenge phase, helping them work through the decision and introducing your process, talking about the timing. Sometimes I'll bring up the timing of a project a little earlier in the conversation because if it's not going to work, then I don't want to draw out the conversation with the client. If it's like they need it tomorrow and I'm not available for two to three months. Um, and then of course the money phase, I do like that Ed highlighted, you know, always talk money and, and we know that, but just like you don't get off the discovery call until you talk about money and find out about the budget, which I, you know, have been guilty of jumping off many sales calls without talking about money. So that's a good reminder too. Yeah, you absolutely have to talk about money. If if the proposal lands on the desk of your potential client and the number is going to be a surprise to them, and by surprise, I don't mean you know that their surprise is too high or too low. It's a surprise because they haven't heard this number on the call or something within a range, then you're making a massive mistake as a copywriter. You really need to use this discovery call to close them. And a proposal is just a follow-up to formalize uh, you know, what it takes. Sometimes you want a second call, you know, you can close on a second call, but uh, talking about money is absolutely critical. And um, I, I'm glad he mentioned that. Most of my time when I'm on a discovery call is in that challenge phase. You know, it's it's really focused on the problem, the, the business, because again, as we mentioned earlier, this is where you set yourself apart as an expert. When you're asking questions about business, about the wider marketing of the business, and not just about copy, you start to build trust with your client that you're 
in it to help them grow their business and not just to write a few words on the website. You and I have been talking a lot about habits in a couple of episodes and we will continue to talk about it because I know we both kind of geek out on this type of conversation and we covered it with Jocelyn Brady. I think it's always fun to hear different approaches. There's so many different approaches to habit building, which makes it fascinating. Um, and Ed was shared a little bit uh, more about James, James Clear's approach to habit building, which again, sounds similar, we, you know, different terminology, um, but similar to other approaches we've talked about with tiny habits and uh, BJ Fogg's approach as well. Yeah. So, and, and I know you've been doing uh, a program with BJ Fogg and really going deep into the tiny habits. I'm just curious, Kira, to throw it out here. You know, what are just a couple of things that you're learning that go along with that uh, approach of James's, you know, the, you know, making your habits obvious and attractive, easy, you know, setting the stage, making sure that you get some satisfaction out of it. I know BJ's approach is a little bit different, but, you know, dovetails really nicely. Is there anything that you would add from his approach? Yeah, there's a lot of similarities. I'm not as familiar with James Clear, so I'm going to dive into that. But I think the the part that stands out to me that feels new is make it satisfying. So for BJ Fogg, it's called celebration. And that concept of celebrating your habits was foreign to me before I stepped into this, this program with BJ. And so I didn't totally understand it, but, you know, he's done the research to prove that celebrating the habit, um, not only after you do it, but even when you think of doing it and while you're doing it. So there's almost three celebrations you can do. Um, which is a lot of celebrating. So oftentimes they just encourage people to just at least celebrate when it's done. If you can't remember to celebrate basically like the whole time you're doing the habit. Um, it sounds a little hokey and some of the celebrations, like it's giving yourself two thumbs up, which isn't really my style. But the cool thing about celebrating is you can figure out what's a, what's a celebration for you. So for me, sometimes it's just like an internal comment I will say to myself to celebrate, or it might just be like throwing my arms up in the air, but it helps the habit stick when you have that moment of celebration and you even feel it in your body. So that's just something that I'm learning more about and intrigued by because I had never thought about that before. Yeah. The idea of having it be satisfying, uh, you know, there's so many things that we do, or at least we tell ourselves that we should be doing around goals, especially goals related to things like um, budget or uh, exercise and weight loss. And some of those things that we do, like keeping a budget is not really satisfying. Like it's painful in some ways or, you know, losing weight is painful. And so looking for, and, and obviously, you know, that's taking it out of the context of copywriting and business building. But, you know, when we're trying to build these habits, finding the things that uh, are the reasons why we're doing them, the, the wins, the things to celebrate, um, makes sticking to the habit and uh, the goals that we're setting related to those habits uh, a lot easier. Yeah. And making it easy is the most important part too. And just like, if it's not happening, if you have, you know, create a habit and it, it happens once or twice and then it doesn't never happens again, you know, how could you break it down to make it even easier? So instead of reading every morning for 20 minutes, it's like, could you just read for one minute when you sit down and set the timer for one minute to make it that much easier and less daunting? And then when you're thinking about how do I make it easier, it's also setting yourself up for success um, within your environment. And that's been really helpful for me because I realized 
most of my habits don't stick because I don't set myself up for success and like pull out my laptop the night before so that it's in the kitchen in the morning, the next morning when I go in to make my tea early morning, rather than leaving my laptop on the other side of the house where I have to go through my kids' room and wake them up at 5 a.m. to get my laptop. Like that doesn't work. So a lot of it's around like, how do I actually structure um, my environment so that it's easier to do these things? So anyway, there's fascinating. I'm sure we'll continue to talk about all of it. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I I mean, it's the environment thing that made it so that when I get up early and I get up very early, you know, and go out and and run first thing in the morning, like if I don't put out my, my shoes and I have to open up the closet, I know that'll wake up my wife. I won't get up and exercise. You know, it's the stuff's got to be out. So yeah, making it easy is important. I, I, okay. So I know we're, we're kind of going on a, a little bit long here, but there are just one or two other things that I would love to mention. Um, one of which is that uh, it's a new tool to me and that's the freedom triad. Uh, you know, just let, as you're thinking through the changes that you should be making in your business, if you don't feel like you're getting what you need from your business, you know, the ideas around either I need to raise my fees or I need to make work more predictable, uh, maybe even recurring, uh, or I need to get better at my systems, get more efficient, um, you know, thinking through those things that help then free up time, help bring in more money into a business so that you can then, you know, have more time um, to spend it on whatever it is. I, it's, I like this tool that Ed walked us through, and I think it's really valuable. Um, I know he mentioned he has it tacked up on his wall. It's definitely something worth thinking through if you're stuck in your business, if you feel like you're not moving forward, making the money that you need or have time for the things you want. What are the what are the changes within those three things that will help you get there? Yeah, it's it's awesome. I love that he's you know named it. It's something that he talks through frequently. It's something that you and I have done with many of our new think tank mastermind members when they just join. Um, you know, we'll we'll sit through and kind of look at their business, almost take a snapshot of their business today to figure out where they could increase their project fees or repackage them, where there are opportunities for reoccurring work, um, and then also focusing on how do we create better systems. So it was it was cool to hear him say that because um, it just kind of echoed part of the process of what we've been doing and reminded me how important it is and, and how we can always go back to that too if we get stuck. Just real quick, the CEO time, we touched on that too. Um, he said his rule of thumb is you know 10% of your time should be spent working on your business, you know, 10% doesn't sound like a lot, but to actually achieve that, it is (laughs) to carve out that time and take it away from the client work sometimes is, uh, is can feel daunting. So I think that's a win. I know I get cranky if I don't get my CEO time. So I usually know if I didn't get it because I just get really disgruntled and I'm not fun to be around. So I need CEO time because it makes me happy. That's how I know if I'm getting it or not. And in our solo businesses, when we're working alone, sometimes we get this idea. It's like, well, I'm working, you know, I'm working, I'm here, I'm on my own. This is CEO CEO time. And it really is a different approach. It's time thinking about your business. It's time working on your business. And that 10%, while that's a a good number as a general rule, you know, if, if you're just starting out and you need to figure out, you know, who is your ideal client? What is the problem that you're solving? I need to work on my website. I need to create, uh, you know, a lead magnet and start an email secret. There's like so much that you can get bogged down on. And 
you know, maybe that isn't just 10% when you're getting started. Maybe it's more like 30 or 40%, but taking the time to build that stuff as you're getting started in your business or as you're you know, making a change in your business and rethinking through that stuff is really important to free up time later and make your business more successful down the line. If you'd like to connect with Ed or check out his podcast, head to b2blauncher.com. We'll link to it in the show notes. As we have for the past couple of episodes, we thought we'd do something fun, at least it's fun for us, and share a review from a listener. This one is going back a few months, but Jill Hill left a review that said, quote, I love this show. I really appreciate the wide variety of copywriters who are interviewed, and each one provides actionable insights. I find myself constantly scrabbling for a pen and paper to make notes when listening. All right. Thanks, Jill, for giving us a review. We appreciate that. And if you're listening to this show and thinking, I want Rob and Kira to mention me on this podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It just takes a minute, and we'd love to hear what you think. If you give us a three or up, we're going to share it. If it's a three or below, it's <laughs> below a three, we probably will not share it on the show. I, I went looking for like the one star review or the two star reviews. And we, there have been a couple, but they never leave comments. Uh, so yes, <laughs> like we can't read. We, you know, if you don't read, leave a comment, we can't read it. But um, fortunately, we don't want to encourage you don't have to do that. Don't, fortunately, don't we have a 4.9 star rating, which is pretty darn good. So and if you just finished listening to this podcast and you can't believe it's over already, we've got a couple more options for you. Start with our interview with Jerisha Hawk, all about high ticket sales. That's episode 204. Then take a listen to our interview with Angie Federico from just a couple of months ago, all about creating a high converting pitch and closing your sales uh, on a sales call. That's episode 283. And finally, let's go way back for our interview with direct response writer, Mike Saul. That's episode 81, which is all about using sales calls to make your copy better. You're probably seeing a theme in those recommendations. If you listen to all three, we promise you won't regret it. And that's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you liked what you heard, you could leave that review or you could share a screenshot of the episode with your favorite takeaway and tag us on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club of money listen to the kira and robs copywriters club can make you lots of money as long as you listen through the whole damn episode